Lord, we, we lift our hearts before you today and we say you are a great God. You are great and mighty in every way. All powerful. You know everything. Lord, you even know us. And Lord, we thank you that you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to enter into this world. Uh, that Jesus came. He made his dwelling among us. We thank you for doing that, Lord. That Jesus lived with us. He lived for us. He died for us. And he rose again for us to give us everlasting life. And Lord, it's only because of what Jesus has done. It's only because of the cross through the shed blood, and through the resurrection, that we can be alive in you today to declare how great you are. And we thank you for that. So Lord, I pray now that as, as we hear your word, as we open your word, as we study your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and speak to us. I pray that you would do the work that you promised to do through your word. We thank you that your word is true. That when it goes forth, it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. So Lord, we humbly ask. You would speak to us today. As we gather here, that we would be transformed. That we would be transformed into a people who go into our world. Living is a visible expression of you in our conduct, in our lives, in our words, and in our witness. But Lord, this is something that only you can do in us and through us, through your grace. We love you, Jesus, because you first loved us. Thank you, Lord. So in your name we pray, and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. Today we're turning in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're continuing our a study of 1 Corinthians 5, our sermon series, which is entitled, A Messy Church. A Messy Church. And uh, we, we just acknowledge the reality that, that we live in a messy world. That we're messy people. Uh, life is a mess because sin entered into the world. And sin ruined creation. It ruined our own hearts. And so we have this, this nature within us that desires to go against God's will for our lives. And because we desire to go against God's will for our lives, we make a mess of things. And the church is the gathering of real people. Real people who struggle with the messiness of life and with the messiness of their own hearts. So when you come into church... It's a church of real people struggling through life. And we also bring in this sin nature in, into the body of Christ, and that, that really makes things even messier within the church. At Moody Memorial Church, a lady uh, went to the pastor, and she was visiting the church, and she said, I'm looking for the perfect church. And the pastor said, well, when you find it, you better not join it because it won't be perfect anymore. <laughs> so the church, the church is, is a messy place. But we give thanks and we give praise to God because in the midst of, of the messiness of life, there is a perfect Savior. His name is Jesus. He was born in Bethlehem's manger 
2,000 years ago. He lived a perfect life among us. He offered a perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice of his own body upon the cross. His blood was shed. His perfect and precious blood was shed upon the cross to cleanse us of all of our sins. And then he sent his perfect Holy Spirit after his resurrection and ascension to fill the church and to help us through the messiness of life. You see, you don't don't have to walk the road of life and, and navigate the messiness of life without God and without a perfect Savior. You can trust in him. And he promises to guide us and to direct us. Now the Corinthian church was a messy church. And things are really going to get really weird and awkward for us today. (laughs) Awkward situation in the church in Corinth. It truly was a a messy place. Well, their their messiness, they were were too messy. They They were messier than they needed to be because they were, first of all, they were... They were too proud. The Corinthians were too proud of their so-called wisdom. That's what we cover in the uh, first four chapters. And they, they were also too proud of their favorite pastors. And they divided. They, they, they divided as a congregation because one said, I follow Paul. I follow Pastor Paul. And then you had another, another click in the church and they said, we follow Pastor Apollos. And then there was another click in the church, and they said, we, we follow Pastor Peter. And then there was the super pious crowd. You always have that. Well, we follow Jesus. Messy place. They were too proud of their wisdom. They were too proud of their favorite pastors. And then something really strange enters in, in here. And they were proud of gross immorality. Proud of gross immorality. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with the first verse, verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And listen to this, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. They were proud of this immorality in in the people, the pagans who lived around them, the unbelievers who lived around them would not even tolerate this. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Most likely with his mother-in-law. Look at verse 2. You're proud. You're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? Paul is saying it's time in the church to be out with the old and in with the new. Out with the old ways of living. The old ways of thinking, the the old ways of of trying to navigate the messiness of life. And he says, in with the new. 
And Paul uses the metaphor of, of leaven or of yeast to describe the effect of sin upon the church. He says, out with the old, in with the new, and he uses the metaphor of yeast. He says, you're boasting in verse 6, in verse 6 of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, your boasting is not good. And he says, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? It only takes a little yeast to enter into the dough and to affect the entire batch. So yeast is something that affects the whole. You see, the church is together. The church is one. The church is a body. And so what affects one affects the whole. We're not in this alone. We're in this together. We're in this together. And Paul even says when one in the church rejoices. That we all rejoice. But when one is going through a difficult time. And is having difficulties and is mourning. We, we all mourn together. Because as the church we're, we're one. We're a body. We're a family. We can't separate from one another. So when one member is affected, it affects the whole body. When sin, and here's the thing, and when sin is not dealt with in the church, it has an effect upon the entire body. When sin is not dwelt, dwelt, dealt with in one person, it has the ability to spread and to cause negative and nasty and messy things within the entire church. So I asked the question, how was the church to deal with this case of incest, of this gross immorality within their congregation? Well, they were to get rid, they were to get rid of immorality. Out with the old, in with the new. So point, point number one. Point number one is we ought to mourn over sin. We ought to be a people who are broken over sin. 1 Corinthians 5.2 You're proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? We're called to mourn over sin. The response of sin in our own lives or within the congregation, it ought to break us and cause us to mourn and to have sorrow. And this really is the true nature of repentance. To repent is to have sorrow over sin. But the Corinthians didn't mourn. They, they were proud. And I, and I don't know specifically why they were proud of the situation. It, 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 it makes no sense in my mind why they would be proud. But then, but then I began to think about, about our own nature apart from Christ. And our own tendency to be proud of, of what we do in life. And, and when we're separated from God, what is natural becomes foreign to us. 
And then we begin to embrace that which is unnatural. So we, we don't need to know the exact reason for their pride, but I think that we only need to look at our own brokenness to understand our own pride of immorality. And our culture's pride of immorality. You see, we've created our own ethical standards of morals. We've created our own moral standards within society, within North American and European culture, which goes against nature. So we're, we're, we're a culture that has gone against nature. And when we create our own standards of ethics and morals, when we exclude God from the discussion of what's moral, we become proud. And today, pride is the rallying cry of sexual immorality within our culture. And the reason for this Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Paul here is teaching about the reality of humanity's fall into sin. Paul says, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is God's word, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to what? To sexual impurity. For the degrading of their bodies with one another. It says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who was forever praised. And the church says, Amen. And because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a, to a depraved mind. So that they do not, so they do what ought not to be done. And, and, and we dare not just narrow in on, on the sin, the sexual sins, the sins of, of homosexuality or the sins of, of incest. But it creates a whole mess. Verse 29, they become filled with every kind. Of wickedness. Yes, There's a problem within the church, and we think that the sexual sins of our culture are the they're the absolute worst ones. You're gonna find yourself in this list. Yes, sir. <laughs> they become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Full of envy. Murder. You know that to commit murder is to be angry with your brother. Strife. Deceit, malice. They're gossips. Slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. And here it is, they invent ways of doing evil. 
They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no faithfulness, no love, no mercy. And it says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but approve, there it is, approve of those who practice them. There it is, church. The reason it's this sin, this mess. Satan entered into the garden, whispered into Adam and Eve's ear, saying, Did God really say? The root of sin is to not believe and trust God. So they did not believe God. Now we're in this big mess. We do the same. Inheritors of a depraved nature. So how is the church to deal with this pride of gross immorality? Get rid of it. Out with the old. In with the new. Number two, or the first point is mourn over sin. The second point is that they were to hold each other accountable. There must be accountability within the church. And and accountability within the church is the proof of love. When there's no accountability within the church, that means there's, there's no love. How can you love somebody if you allow them, or you're, you're, at least you're not willing to hold them accountable to their destructive behavior? None of us, none of us would, would allow those that we love to just blindly go into or not be held accountable to their actions. Especially if their actions will destroy them. So we're to hold each other accountable. The motivation, and here's the thing, the motivation is love. Not a hard heart and a judgmental spirit or a hatred and spite towards another person, but a deep love and concern for the one who is going astray. So we mourn over sin. We hold each other accountable. And then number three, probably didn't think you were going to get a sermon on this when you came here. We excommunicate the unrepentant. Excommunicate the unrepentant. And you need to understand that this is redemptive in nature. This is redemptive in nature. It, it, is, it is an act of... What Paul says of of trying to have this person redeemed and brought back into fellowship. So if if there's no mourning over sin, if, if they will not be held accountable to God, then the church is given authority to excommunicate the unrepentant. And for this we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 through 5. Paul says, so when you are assembled... And I'm with you in spirit. And the power of our Lord Jesus is present. He says this, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? For what purpose? So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. There's a lot of commentary which has been written on these verses. What does this mean? 
The church is to hand him over to Satan. So for the destruction of his flesh, but that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. A lot of commentators believe, and I agree, that this means that, that we allow, we simply allow the person to experience the full force of life apart from God's blessings. Heard a man give his testimony. He was a preacher. He tells the story of when he was a, a teenager. And he began to be rebellious and to act rebelliously. And like the prodigal son, he just he wanted to go. So he, he, was, he packed his, his bags and he went out to the, to the front porch. And he met his, his mom and dad there at the front porch. He was about ready to get into his, his blue 1950 Ford. And then his mom said this. Now, now son, you just run. Son, you just run, 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 run. You go. You're free. You just run. But then she said to his boy, but son, no. That you can never run so far that my prayers won't reach you. You never run so far that my prayers won't reach you. You see, these, these parents understood that because of his hard heart, he had to go and experience and see for himself like the prodigal son. But know this, that, that, when we, that when we release the unrepentant, or even when we're forced to enact church discipline, that they can't run so far that our prayers won't reach them. Now this, uh, this teenage boy, he, he went off. He didn't tell his parents. He didn't want his parents following him. So he took off in his 1950 Ford, he preaches the gospel today, he took off in his 1950 Ford and he checked into a cheap hotel and he went out to do something during the day and he came back and his dad was there. And his dad had checked into the hotel adjacent to his room. <laughs> and his dad came into his room and he saw the liquor on the table and all these things that his parents didn't approve of. He says, this stuff good? And he said, yeah, it's good, Dad. We said, okay, well, I'm just going to be hanging out with you here. I'm going to hang out. And he thought to himself, how in the world am I going to enjoy myself with my, my dad hanging around? So then he said, Dad, you can't hang around. I'm going out tonight. I'm going out to the, to the tavern. I'm going to meet up with some friends. You can't stay here. Well, his dad said, I'll, I'll just, I won't say anything. I'll just sit in the car and pray. So his dad gets into his 1950 Ford. And they head off to the tavern. And he thought, how in the world can I have a good time when my dad's sitting in the car praying for me? <laughs> well, eventually he came to his senses and he went back home. His mom said, his mom said, I gave instructions to your dad. To go and find him and don't leave until he comes back home. And they said, well, how did you find me? 
His mom says, well, I was praying. I received the address, the room number. I wrote it on a piece of paper. I gave it to your dad. And I said, don't come back until you bring our son with you. That's the heart in the spirit. The redemptive purpose of church discipline. It's not that it's punitive, not that it's full of of, of hatred or judgmentalism, but it's simply handing them over to experience, to experience what life away from God really is all about. The church has been given authority from Jesus, actually. And oftentimes, not all the time, but sometimes this happens. Sometimes the church has to exclude the unrepentant from the fellowship of believers. Sometimes their hearts will not be humbled. They will not mourn over sin. They will not be held accountable. And this is what the church has to do sometimes, is to excommunicate the unrepentant. Now, every organization, every business, every group has standards, right? And the church has standards, too. But what is different about the church is that there is grace and there is forgiveness. When a person is opened by the Holy Spirit to see their sin, to recognize their sin, and to return. Now, in our, in our society, it's not like the church. In our society, when somebody messes up, that's it. That's it. You know those guys, did you hear in, in Ohio about those gentlemen that uh, cheated at the fishing competition? They put weights into the walleyes. They went to weigh them. They weighed more, way more than they should have. And they opened the fish, found the lead weights inside those, those walleye. It was a big competition, a big deal. $30,000 if they would have won. They're just being eaten alive. By the media. That happened in the church. We'd hold them accountable. But if they mourned over their sin, if there was repentance, there was a sense, yeah, I did wrong. We wouldn't do what this society does and just banish them forever. We open our arms. We say, welcome home. Welcome home to Jesus. Out with the old, in with the new. Sometimes this is painful. So today we're going to talk about also about in with the new. And Paul uses Easter, the Passover, as, a, as the theological reasoning behind his out with the old, in with the new proposition. For us to understand why we deal with sin in the congregation the way we do, we need to understand and trust in the reality of Easter. You see, we are called not only to believe in the reality of Easter, but we are called to live in the reality of Easter. Easter is the ultimate out with the old, 
in with the new. Out with the old, in with the new. Paul says in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, Get rid of the old yeast. Get rid of it. Out with the old. So that you may be a new unleavened batch. As you really are. For Christ, our Paschal Lamb or our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. That's the ultimate out with the old. The cross of Jesus Christ. Your sins were nailed to the cross. Therefore let us keep the festival not with the old unleavened bread, with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Easter is not just a reality to believe. It is a reality to live in every day. Day. The problem with me and other Christians is, is that, and the reason things are messier than they need to be, is because I'm not living in the reality of Easter. I'm living in the old reality of, of this leaven, of this stuff that should be swept out of the house and done away with for the Passover feast. I'm living in the old, I'm not living in the new that's been given to me by Jesus Christ. You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus is not a dead in dry historical event. The death and resurrection of Jesus is a, is a daily reality to live in and to share in. Jesus died and He rose again. He died and He rose again. But not only that, but you died with Christ. And you have been raised with Christ to newness of life. Paul in Romans uh, chapter 6, beginning with the third verse, he, he writes this. He wrote, or, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. For we know that the old self was crucified with Him, so that the body ruled by sin might be what? Done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also what? Live with Him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. The death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. Verse 11, in the same way, what? Count yourselves, what? Dead to sin, but alive, but alive to Christ Jesus. And I lost my place here. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. 
Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from what? From death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Out with the old. In with the new. Thanks be to God. Your baptism is God's promise to you. You are an Easter Sunday Christian. The old sinful nature has died. And you're alive to God and holiness and righteousness today. And when we allow to sin to have full reign in the church, it proves that, that we're not living in the reality of our resurrection, but in the old ways of death and destruction. Because living as a baptized child of God means that you live as a resurrection believer. It means that Jesus did away with the old and brought the new, not by your own good works, Not by your religious devotion, but by his powerful act of redemption, by his death and resurrection. So the question I ask, does this stuff really work? Does it really work in reality? Mourning over sin. Holding each other accountable. Excommunicating the unrepentant. Living as an Easter Christian. Does it really work? To find the answer, we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Another letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church after these events transpired. What happened to the man who was engaged in gross sexual immorality? Paul writes about him in his second letter to the Corinthians, or at least the the second letter that we have, there were more than uh, two letters that were written, we believe. But what we have is 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. Verse 5, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you. Uh, to some extent, not to put it too severely. Then about this man, he says, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. It is sufficient. Look at verse 7. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him. That's Jesus. That's grace. That's forgiveness. You ought to forgive and to comfort him. So that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. He had been brought to that place of mourning over sin. He was willing to be held accountable. And the discipline exercised by the church did its work. Now it's time to forgive and to comfort. One preacher was uh, hosting a television show, and he brought in a preacher who years ago had committed sexual immorality and was restored to the ministry. And so the one preacher said to the preacher that uh, was there, well, what should we talk about? The preacher who had committed sexual immorality and had been removed from the ministry and had been disciplined and returned to the ministry said, well, normally they want to talk about me and, and what I did. 
And, uh, but I'd, I'd like to talk about it from my wife's perspective. What was it like for my, my wife to go through these things, this, what, this, this terrible sin that I had committed? And, uh, and the preacher who was hosting the show said, well, how long ago did that happen? And so it was like seven years ago. And he says, why are we still talking about it? He says, God doesn't even remember it. Why would we bring up and talk about something again that not even God can remember? Because a person who, who is brought to repentance and who asks for forgiveness, that person's sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. God can't see the sin. Because it's covered in the blood. It's been washed away. So he said, let's not even talk about that anymore. God doesn't care about that anymore. He said, it's under the blood. He said, when we go on TV, let's talk about something else God's doing in your ministry today. It works. Because the gospel works. So then I ask the question as I'm reading this passage, should I be excommunicated from the church? Shouldn't I be excommunicated from fellowship? Because I too am a sinner, right? Well, the difference is between the attitude of, of repentance, humble repentance, and we go back to the beginning, pride. That's the difference. When you're proud of sin, that shows that there is no repentance. There is no repentance. The repentant are forgiven. Now the repentant may continue to struggle daily with sin. The addict, hooked on alcohol, may continue to, to fall into the sin of drunkenness. But there's that continual humility, that sense of I have done wrong. So for him, there is forgiveness. Even though he's addicted to, to alcohol or, or to drugs or people are even addicted to other things. Anything that causes a dopamine rush in the brain, gambling, shopping, food. But as long as there is this humble acknowledgement of sin, there is forgiveness. And there's another danger. Well, there's two dangers. The first danger is no longer feeling guilt over sin. That's danger, the first danger. If you're not feeling guilt, and did you know it's possible for, for our conscience, that internal compass of right and wrong, to become calloused? Amen. So that, that's one danger. But, but the other danger is, is always carrying the burden of guilt. And never being free in the grace and in the mercy of Jesus Christ. So God doesn't want you to be calloused over your sinfulness. And he doesn't want you to be carrying the burden of guilt and sin because you're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're free. Live in your freedom today. It doesn't matter what you did in the past. Because those who repent... Free in Christ, free from the guilt of sin, free from the condemnation 
of sin. See, Satan wants to take us to one extreme or the other. He wants your heart to become callous so you don't feel guilt over your actions, or he wants you to be continually carrying the burden of your guilt. Jesus wants you free. He wants you free today. Let's pray for that freedom. Lord Jesus, I pray for this congregation. I pray that you would release us from the lies of the enemy. The scriptures say that Satan, the God of this age, blinds our minds. So we can't see the goodness of the light of the gospel. So Lord, I pray that in the name of Jesus that you would release us now. That if there are any here today that the need to feel the guilt of sin but don't, I pray that you would bring upon them the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That they would be brought to humble repentance today. And to those who are repentant, who acknowledge their sins, who acknowledge Jesus as Savior, I pray that they would sense your freedom today. That they would live in the promise of your freedom today, knowing that to all who repent and believe, there is forgiveness, there is grace, there is mercy, and it's abundant. So Lord, we humbly ask today that you would do this work, that what we talk about in the Bible would be a reality in my heart and in the hearts of the people gathered here today. Move by the power of your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.